This is Lisa Loeb, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From music business worldwide, the next 10 years in music hold a wealth of opportunity, but only if copyright, revenue collection, and distribution catch up. From Amplify You, Spotify's 15th anniversary, its impact on the music industry. From Simple, will pre-saves still be effective in 2022? And from Music Business Worldwide, Tidal to launch user-centric royalty system and direct-to-artist payments. Well, 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 we will be talking about this and more. Buckle in, it is episode number 67, pre-Thanksgiving. This is your Morning Coffee podcast. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Oh, Jay, what is going on on a Saturday morning with your band? Oh, self? it's a beautiful, foggy morning. How are you? I'm well, and when it's foggy like that in the morning, God, it's just there's so much gravity in my room. I just can't pull out of bed. And <laughs> I know you've been up for hours, hours and hours yeah. and hours, but I yeah. am a sleeper in the morning, and that's uh, it's. I love it yeah. when it's foggy, so I can sleep in. But we've we've yeah. we've basically yeah. done a whole show before yeah. we've started <laughs> hitting. Oh, yeah, the we've been talking button. for about an hour. You know, I I do get up early. Everybody has their own clock, their own internal clock. Um, and the grass is always greener. I would love to be able to sleep in. I would give you my car if I could just sleep in. But uh, no, not for me. Ever since I was very, very young, I, I wake up super early and I don't need an alarm clock. I just go. And well, and we've, and you and I have talked about this on numerous occasions. Um, it, what I find interesting, too, is that you know, you, you, like I, were a musician and played in bands. And typically that is... That is the the a late night activity, and yeah. you usually make up for it in the morning. So you must have been doing gigs, and then you'd wake up at six. You well, know, we would day. we would do shows, and then you go out for the uh, diner meal afterwards. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and by the mm-hmm. time you get to bed, sometimes the the sun would be coming up. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. And in those days, yeah, I could sleep for you know four or five hours, but that's really all I really get is like you know, five hours sleep a night. Well, I sometimes, as you say, the grass is always greener. I I yeah. often wish that I could drag my carcass out of bed earlier than I can, and so yeah. it's always a struggle. Always has been. So. That's you know what. 
It's all it good. is what so, it is. So this week, as you mentioned, um, is Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving mm-hmm. to everybody. Hope you have a wonderful uh, holiday with your family and friends. The other exciting part, and you and I have touched on this, but I'm going to do it again, is so excited. The Beatles Get Back is, oh my uh, God. you know, three nights. It's a three-part documentary mm-hmm. miniseries uh, thing. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, 24th, 25th, 26th, uh, directed by Peter Jackson on Disney+. Plus. Um, they've uncovered something like 60 hours of unseen footage, and I, I'm just really excited to see, because I've seen the, you know, the teasers they have yes. online, and it looks... And, and the last thing I'll say on it is, um, if you watch um, Let It Be, it's depressing, and this is not the footage I've seen so far is joyful and uh, funny, and I, I think it's going to rewrite history a little bit. And I'm I'm really excited well. And, about it. and if you're not the Beatles geek that Jay and I are, uh, you you probably should know that. So that that Beatles Let It Be movie came out back in 1970, and the Beatles own it or they have the rights to it, and they took it off the market many many moons ago. And so you can't just go out. You couldn't go to Blockbuster when Blockbuster existed and rent. Let it be because it they had taken it off. They're so disappointed with it. They they just didn't want it out there. And it, you know we had bootlegs of it and stuff. And I saw it actually the day sure. I was a little kid, but I saw it at the drive-in. And the other thing that's kind of confusing and a lot of people had mixed up at the time, especially was it was kind of thought to be it was kind of this watching the Beatles break up. But right. we actually ha- and the Let It Be project came out last of all the Beatles records, right. but it was actually the next to the last recording that right. they did. So yeah, they Abbey had Road a- was actually yeah, the absolutely. final, but final recording. But as you're saying, in release, it was the other way around. Exactly. So a lot of people think that this was the last thing they did at the time. There's a lot of just kind of general confusion of over the the the, the order with which it was done. And so anyway, so that's kind of what it is. And this was originally going to be a theatrical release, a, 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 about a, a two hour movie. And uh, not that long ago, they kind of shifted the direction and they came out with this now three episodes, three episodes with. Uh, I wonder if that's piece. because of the pandemic. I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. So it's going to be. I can yeah. to say that I can hardly wait is really. Yeah. An, uh, That'll be fun. And it's, and again, and I was talking to our good friend uh, Jim Belcher, uh, who is yeah. a, 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 a kind of a visual expert, and he was saying that if you look at it, so this was originally apparently Let It Be was originally going to be on television in the UK, so it was filmed. In a four by three aspect ratio. Oh, and so, but okay. what they're doing is they're they're letterboxing it, so they're taking a sixteen by nine chunk out of it. So that's how they get to sixteen by nine. But this was originally a four by three, which is the old standard television aspect ratio, almost a square that we that we all grew up with. And so that's kind of the behind the scenes. But Peter Jackson is well known for his uh, his team of yeah. restoration, and so it's going to look and it, the, what we've seen so far looks spectacular. Can't so, wait! Can't wait! Hardly wait! Well, Jay, let's talk a little bit about all the groovy as we as we head into Thanksgiving. It is worth mentioning how thankful we are uh, for our sponsors because yes, we could not do this without them. And uh, top of the list is our good friends over at TiVo Music Metadata, dedicated to bringing order to the chaos of digital music. TiVo Music Metadata offers obsessively deduplicated 
artist, album and song IDs, expert written editorial content and ratings, verified images, weighted deep descriptors, similar artists, band members and influences, authoritative credits, personalization, discovery and search APIs, purpose-built solutions for classical music, and a global connected car platform linking broadcast radio with streaming. Jump over to TiVo.com slash music to find out more about TiVo yeah, Music Metadata. we love TiVo Music Metadata. Your Morning Coffee podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built by musicians, for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it super easy to build beautiful websites and EPKs for your music. All the features you need for a professional website, everything is already built, uh, built right in, including hosting and custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to help you sell your music and merch commission-free, uh, commission-free uh, crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to help you grow your fan list and send newsletters out, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. They have awesome, awesome uh, live customer support. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use a promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, and you will receive 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code Morning coffee. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Bands in Town. Speaking of Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in, bands in Town to uh, get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages um, from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard, and that uh, helps them to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Big thanks to all of our friends at Bandzoogle, TiVo Music Metadata, Bands in Town, Hypebot. Oh my goodness, we are so, we, so, so, so lucky. We sure are. And the guy that I chat with every weekend is none other than Jay Gilbert. He is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which you better know by now is weekly music news for the new music business and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music. And also, uh, when I first met him, he was uh, a, a kindred spirit in terms of his hyper interest in the Beatles and his insane collection of Beatle bootlegs at the time. Mm -hmm. Let me just tell you. Guilty Jimmy as Gilbert. charged. And I have a face for radio. Um, <laughs> my, my good friend Mike Etchard <laughs> here do. is a <laughs> longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, uh, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music. Boy, we have so many great things to talk about. This last issue of Your Morning Coffee, the newsletter, was probably the most jam-packed I've done in seven years. Uh, I had to leave off so much because it was just such, a, not only a busy week in the music industry, but the quality of the articles that came out this week were just absolutely stunning, and it made it really difficult to pick uh, the articles for you and I to talk about today. Well, and remember, in the old music business, this is when things were slow, <laughs> you know, because you would jam out those fourth-quarter right. releases. And then everybody kind of, <clears throat> like, literally from between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it was just, it was like 
crickets in the in the well, building. Thanksgiving and, and New Year's. And New Year's, really, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It's, there were tumbleweeds blowing down the uh, the hallways. You know, everybody seemed to bug out and disappear this time of year. Radio stations froze their uh, charts. And now, of course, you know, playlist curators are starting to freeze uh, their charts as we roll into the holidays. Um, but one of the most important stories uh, this week um, and we talk about some of these things a lot, but it's super important because this is kind of the direction the music industry is going. It's from Music Business Worldwide. Um, a variety of writers put this together over there, and the headline is, The next 10 years in music hold a wealth of opportunity, but only if copyright, revenue collection, and distribution catch up. Ouch. Mm-hmm. And this is actually an op-ed on Music Business Worldwide from Roberto Neri, He's the COO at Utopia Music. He used to be, if you recognize that name, you you might remember him. He used to be um, executive vice president of business development at Downtown. So he's got a wealth of knowledge and experience. Um, This new company he's working with, Utopia Music, it says the company is building a platform that it says will uh, bring near real-time trust and transparency to tracking and distributing music rights and royalties. And that... Keep that in mind as we go through some of these things, um, you know, in the next 10 years um, that he believes will be um, super meaningful. And I would argue that they already are. Yeah, absolutely. And as we've mentioned before, Music Business Worldwide is, well, it's based in the UK, I think, right? So you see a lot of of people and a lot of companies that here in the States... We may not be familiar with or not have heard of, but yeah. Um, yeah, and it is interesting. And you know, just like again, we 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 are constantly kind of comparing the old music business and the new music business, and and it is pretty staggering when you look at again and again. We've talked about this so many times. Is is how quickly we've we've changed from this kind of very static. Uh, very really small kind of ways of distribution, f- small ways that you would you you consume music, and it's just even in the last three years how much has changed. But it is yeah. such it's a different exploding. world now. Yeah, exactly. But they, you know, and again, we're just they're talking about they kind of break down into some uh, some very basic kind of uh, categories: recorded music, streaming, sync. UCG, user-generated content and social, creator tools, live stream concerts, fandom, games. So you've got all of these different kind of silos now that we're talking about where there is revenue. And it is hard to keep up. But boy, the the money is there. Yeah. And 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 I want to talk about, you know, kind of each one of those. Um, But before we do, let's set the stage because, you know, um, the music industry is thriving again. Um, and it's, it's a good place to be. It's a good place to invest uh, according to a lot of smart people. You know, there's a lot of big money deals, you know, from, uh, people like hypnosis and primary wave and round hill and BMG and KKR. We, we talk about those things pretty regularly last year, the global music industry, uh, revenues grew 7.4%, uh, to hit 21.6 billion, uh, marking the sixth consecutive year of growth and of course most of that was driven by streaming but not all of it was driven by streaming there is this growing area of the music industry um, we talked about it with um, the the head of warner music um, 
uh, in a story recently. Um, but according to Music Business Worldwide Research, you know, total retail revenues of the global um, recorded music market have the potential to grow by 58 percent you know, by 2028 and reach something like $62 billion, you know, up from like $39 billion in 2021. And that's made up of those things that you mentioned. So let's, let's run through those because this is the crux of this entire article and the message. And this is something that artists, managers, labels, distributors, uh, publishers, a lot of people are talking about these things and it's super important not to just look at it as recorded music. Like you were just saying, you know, it used to be you'd have a cassette, an eight track, you know, vinyl CD later, you know, you had those kind of tangible tactile things and boy, there's, there's so much more now than that. Um, the first one is sync and that's when you get your music into film, film TV, and television games <clears throat> And, and other things, right? So, you know, that's up 66%. And that's, you know, $3.5 billion. That's not nothing. Well, um, and, and, and when, when you talk about sync, too, it's really important to recognize that, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago. If you go backwards, there was kind of, you know, three major television networks. There was... Um, there were movies, of course, but but you, there is so much uh, movie television content coming out now. So that potential market in terms of just how much stuff that we all watch now is yeah. dramatically larger than it was back right. just a generation ago. You know, that's and right. So, and it used to be uncool. Remember Neil Young mm-hmm. uh, singing a song about it. You know um, that it wasn't cool to kind of quote unquote sell out, but then. In the iTunes era, when digital downloads were so big, iTunes started using developing artists like Feist and things like that in their ads, and then that would be the catalyst of developing that artist and launching them, and then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to be in an iTunes commercial or a Cadillac commercial or, I mean, Sting basically had a hit because he was in a commercial, so uh, it's, it's now cool again. Well, and recognize as a super viable um, project, a super viable way of getting people to know about the songs, and and you know, especially as radio is so tight and so uh, challenging, the being in a hit movie now is what everybody is chasing, or even at your end credits or whatever. And my, to my way, I remember thinking when I was at at Warner Music in the very early nineties. Well, I'm trying to remember the show, but I but um, was it. Uh, one of those kind of not teen but sort of young adult shows that was on television and that was kind of one of the first times that like it was they were known for having great music in the show and that was that was to my way of thinking that was the that was really the first time people were kind of going yeah this is a good thing this is a really good thing and artists were thinking this is a good thing i want to be associated with this show. that's right and it became and, easier because we started getting these apps like Shazam. So when you're sitting there watching a movie or a television show, you're like, that's a great song. You don't have to go hunting to figure out what it is. You, you click a button, and we see it all the time when we get a sync placement. If it's a good sync placement, um, those Shazams go through the roof. You know, we talked about a song we had in a Marvel film this last oh, year. Yeah. Yeah, and the cover. It, yeah, and it had, you know, like a million Shazams. I mean, that's crazy. But it's interesting because you can look at that data. But yeah, so sync is really is really big. The next one, user generated content 
and social. Now there are deals being struck, as you've read, you know, about, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook, for example, and TikTok. And, you know, there's some that are still withholding uh, their their music from TikTok, which or Twitch, you know, which makes no sense to me at all. But user generated content. Well, what is that? You know, it it could be as simple as having an artist on Twitch you know, performing your song or an interpolation. You know, we talked about those. It could be videos being created, you know, on socials, you know, whether it's TikTok or whether it's YouTube or wherever that's using licensed music where the rights holders are compensated for that. So user-generated content, you know, that's actually bigger than sync. That's um, yeah. that's up a hundred percent over, uh, you know, the previous year. So yeah. that's like, it's, it's $8 billion. That's, that's, you know, sync is $5.8 billion. So that's substantial revenue. Yeah, exactly. And again, as Jay said, that's up a hundred percent over last year's 4 billion number. And then in the case of sync, sync itself is up 66% of over 2020's 3.5 billion. So these are dramatic increases. You're really talking about big numbers here and yeah. fast. Uh, up next is interesting. And we, you and I talked about this before we hit record. Um, creator tools, plugins, DAWs, digital audio workstations, uh, VSTs, and services, $2 billion, up 100% from last year's $1 billion. Again, these are the these are the tools with which we create music. And again, you've got, like you were mentioning, you know, you, you've got you, Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar sound or the Hammond organ sound from a particular song. These are things that are licensed from from catalog owners, and that is another revenue source for oh, a lot yeah. of people. Nobody was thinking about. Nobody was thinking about this because the technology didn't exist. Seven right, years back. and now one of the big uh, businesses is uh, the business of beats, where mm-hmm. beats are so important for today's music that people are licensing them, they're selling them, and there's big money there. So you talked about plugins, uh, DAWs, D-A-W, um, Digital Audio Workstation, VSTs, which I wasn't familiar with, so I Googled it. It's virtual studio technology. But there are loops and samples and stems and you know bits and pieces so you can stand on the shoulders of giants and create. Yep. Um, and what was that artist you told me about that went into the studio to record and hadn't like used real instruments? Do you remember that? Uh, no. Uh, um, the I, we, you and I spoke of it? Yeah, we, maybe. I, 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 I could be wrong. But there was an artist, a female artist, that went into the studio to record uh, a follow-up to her debut album, and her debut album wasn't recorded with real instruments. And so <laughs> when she got into the studio, it was like, wow, this is... This is cool. You've got like real instruments in here because today with all of these tools, you can do that. You can record uh, a full album without a real instrument. And people like, you know, Dead Mouse and David Guetta and, you know, Steve Aoki, yeah. people like that have been doing that for years with a laptop, right? Um, but you can record some really cool things. So that, that point, creator tools, um, is $2 billion. And that's up 100% year over year. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and again and and like we were also mentioning beforehand, the, the 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 thing is amazing is for the consumer all those creator tools are so cheap. You know, it's just we both grew up at a time when even in the 1970s or 80s studio time was like 150 bucks an hour. It was insanely expensive. And now you can get everything for just almost 
very little money. And so it's it's a wonderful time to be a creator. But anyway, up next sure is live streamed concerts. Uh, this is this is you talk about a big number. So in 2020, live stream concerts brought in about 600 million dollars. Not an insignificant number, but if you want to pump that up to this year's number, how about 6.4 billion? That's up 967 percent for the math inclined wow. listening in. That is insane. And I know you well, participated, and yeah, you have lots of artists that are jumping on that bandwagon as they should. Yeah, and I have some artists who have been doing it for 15 years, too. Mm-hmm. Um, live streaming is is not new, uh, live streaming shows. But of course, during the pandemic, you know, a lot of folks were forced into learning how to do it. Some yep. did it really well. Some didn't. Some put a lot of production value into it. But now it's become a part of our business. And even as the pandemic um, subsides and hopefully at some point goes away, it's now another arrow on our quiver. It's another thing that we can generate revenue from. It's another way to reach more people. People aren't afraid of it anymore. And that's why I think you see that 967% increase. Well, and then when you talk about another gigantic leap back in 2020, $500 million, again, a big number associated for the, the broad category of fandom. And now that uh, has gone from $500 million to $5 billion. And yeah. fandom can be many, many things, right? Yes, I mean, that's, that's essentially the yep. guitar lesson from one of your favorite players. It's, it can be it's Patreon NFTs. subscription, right? Exactly. It can be um, tipping. It can be all those things that you mentioned. And um, I we talk uh, a lot about fandom because I think it's one of those underserved areas. And people, you know, I think cameo.com and thrills.co.uk and... Um, only fans and and Patreon to a, a large degree too. Um, there's a lot of revenue being generated there, and it's people were afraid that it might be considered, I don't know, pandering. Uh, I heard one manager say one time, and they they're changing their views on that um, because you can devote as much time as you want, a little or a lot, and generate a ton of revenue. And as you just pointed out, fandom was five billion dollars. You know, and that's up. Nine hundred percent. God, and then games at four billion dollars. Again, you know, games have been around for a very long time, and it's always been that. that and having worked in the game business for a bit back in the day, um, there's always been this kind of interesting kind of face-off between games and music. And the music business had has for years tried to jump into the games business, thinking that they could do it just as well and of course they can't um but still again all of these things are such big numbers and we're talking substantial revenue coming in um but something kind of has to be done and you know they they talk about so what needs to be done to support these significant opportunities and it's at first the music industry shouldn't be stifling new technology now yes you know having been around we can say that Probably honestly, the music business has tried to stifle Absolutely. over the years. Yeah, um, initially, lots of the, exactly. Whenever a new things. technology, and you and I were working at Universal together at the time, and mm-hmm. in business development, we'd have these platforms, and they present to us. And to be fair, some of them um, weren't. Well, they were trying to build their company on the back of the music industry without, yes. you know, fully compensating them. But some of the ideas, let's let's take the original Napster. The music industry, until BMG decided they wanted to own it, um, they were trying to destroy it, trying to shut it down. I actually got to go to Napster 
and have a meeting. I'm back when it was the illegal Napster. And the thing that blew me away was for the first time in our industry, we could tell what consumption was. We could tell, oh, well, this sounds crazy, but the people who listen to Metallica also listen to Lyle Lovett. You know, we should put them on the road together. Now, I know that sounds absurd, but it just illustrates the point that for the very first time, we knew what people were actually listening to and what was in their library. And then this company called Big Champagne came around. Um, you know, Eric Garland started this company called Big Champagne. And what they did is they measured the illegal, you know, peer-to-peer BitTorrent kind of file trading and then broke it up um, by DMA, like SoundScan, meaning designated marketing area. So they might have, you know, the Tri-Cities in, in Washington or they might have the Bay Area in San Francisco. Those are designated marketing areas. Well, they broke up that illegal file trading in those same DMAs and now um, they got kicked out of every single record company you can think of until Jimmy Iovine said, wait a second, you can measure what people are actually listening to? So it started informing their decisions about what single they should put out. Right. It was crazy. They're like, well, wait a second, we're thinking of doing this as our next single, but everybody's gravitating towards this other track. And so it became a force. And I believe it was Live Nation that bought them up years ago and eventually shuttered them, but they were pioneers. It was just so cool. Yeah. So, you know, we to, to illustrate your point, you know, I bring that up, but the fact of the matter is, is everybody is inherently afraid of what they don't understand. And yeah. we really got burned by illegal file trading in the music industry and it we made us really gun shy. So when new technologies, even streaming initially, um, we fought against and if you remember back in the day, the majors started their own, like there was press play and there was music net and one would have, you know, the repertoire of Sony and Warner and the other one would have, you know, universal and EMI or whatever. And we just couldn't get out of our own way. Um, and I think it's the same thing in this article. They talk about certain labels that um, are still holding up licensing for Twitch or for TikTok, yeah. And I just find that today, I just think that's foolish. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things they mentioned <clears throat> is that uh, we we need to educate new players, meaning new revenue opportunities, and uh, onboard them into the music industry as quickly as we can in order for them to understand the value that music brings to their service and customers. Very important. And w one of those things that we saw in those early days was that people came in with these ideas. They didn't really understand the business. They didn't understand our side of the of the of the big table that we were talking over, um, and kind of how things work. And so that is a super important. Of course, there's more ways to to learn about that. But I think there's still a, a real kind of knowledge gap between yeah. companies that want to be in this space and understanding what publishing is and masters and that whole rigmarole. That's 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 challenging. So, so well taken first point there. And then this is super important too. Secondly, every territory must respect, understand, and value music copyright, which isn't currently the case. Territories like no. India and China count for a third of the world's population and yet don't align with what's in place elsewhere when it comes to valuing the work of creators. Yeah. India for sure is malleable in that sense, probably, um, but China, boy, that's a tough one. Yeah, and I would add Russia to that list. Oh, um, of course. It's yes. it's another super tough one. Challenging. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they talk about antiquated revenue collection, and we're as an industry, we're not really good 
at making sure that everything's monetized and then that we're properly accounting for that monetization. Mm -hmm. Um, They state that their report uh, points that out, that there are several billion dollars in unallocated royalties, you know, unclaimed with estimates around, you know, 50 to 30% of total collections. So that's a huge problem that technology can help uh, overcome. Right. Um, And the interesting thing is overall, due to problems within the system, we think that creators could potentially be missing out on 50% of their income, including admin charges. Yeah. So that got my attention. Yeah. Yeah. What do do they say? You know, a a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. Uh, That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 you know, again, when you kind of lay it out and when you see an article like this, it, it, it's so fascinating because, you know, again, this is the new music business. This is the things that that people that, that own catalogs, these are the people that are working with artist development, kind of have to, have to factor into their entire way of that they're doing business. And yeah. it's... And it's changing so quickly. Yeah, this and, is one you know, of those that I, I printed out and kind of highlighted, you know, those uh, those revenue streams that they talk about because mm-hmm. you're right that is the mu- new music business right the the pelotons of the world a couple of years ago we weren't really talking about that um, no now we are uh, along with a lot of other things so uh, we'll continue to watch these uh, revenue streams and see how they perform but they were fairly new in the last year or so that we've been doing this podcast and there a lot of them are doubling in value so it's definitely got yep. our attention Absolutely. Absolutely. So one to read this week for sure. Uh, Up next from Amplify You, has it really been 15 years that Spotify has been around? I guess it has. I looked that up um, and it has been 15 years since they were founded. Okay, um, but it's been 13 years since they launched. But let's not let facts get in the way of a good story. And this is a good story. And we're kind of nitpicking there a little bit. By the way, for those of you who are keeping score, uh, Spotify launched um, in October of 2008 um, in Stockholm and some other um, areas as well. They didn't launch in the U.S. until July of 2011. And yeah. Um, Still, that's coming up on. Oh, that's been ten years. So it, it's it's an it's an anniversary, seem- and you and I talk a lot about the innovations, and it's so great to read this article because they they call out some of those innovations that you know and love, and some that maybe you have uh, forgotten about, mm-hmm. um, and they continue uh, to innovate, even you know with this article. You know, whether it's, you know, they, they announced lyrics last week and they recently announced, you know, the, the Shopify uh, thing with merch. And but uh, I would love to go through these uh, with you so they you know, they say that in commemoration of this anniversary, they're exploring, you know, Spotify's impact on the music industry. Um Peer-to-peer file sharing that we were just talking about, you know, platforms like Napster, LimeWire, they, they devastated uh, the music business. They just did. And streaming brought about a certain kind of stability, predictability, you know, that wasn't there in the 2000s, you know. So we talked about a moment ago that the U.S. recorded music, or not U.S., the worldwide recorded uh, business is now $21.6 billion. Um, and streaming has grown almost 20%. So with 
over 365 month, monthly active users, MAUs, we talk about that, including 165 million paying subscribers. So 200 million people are on the ad-supported uh, tier. Spotify is the world's leading, leading streaming service. I would say um, YouTube is the world's leading music streaming service, but I know what they're getting at. Um, <laughs> yes. By the end of 2021, it'll be available in more than 178 countries. So let's wow. let's walk. I'll take the first one and let's walk sure. through some of these because I think they're they're super important. Um, so this is um, Spotify's anniversary, and this is talking about its impact on the music industry. Uh, number one, Spotify's impact on music piracy. Illegal downloading was largely uh, brought to an end after music fans realized that they can stream high-quality music for just a few dollars a month or you know, for free on the ad-supported tier. 200 million people doing that. It's safe to say that Spotify and other streaming services have largely been successful in mitigating large-scale music piracy. And I would say you're never going to get rid of piracy. People are stealing streams. People are, you know, anything that comes through a computer can be captured. But for the most part, it made it, it's so labor intensive, you know, even with downloads anymore, that why bother when you can just get the ad supported tier and go? So I would agree 100%. Spotify has had some tremendous impact on uh, music piracy. And it's it's funny to think back I, when when it was at the height, you know, call it the early to mid, you know, the tooth call it uh, call it two thousand and one through let's say two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm. To to have to have broken the back of that, so to speak, was is unfathomable because I mean I remember that feeling at the time, which is, you know, the the. Uh, the, the the it's like in Game of Thrones, you know the 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 the, the 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 army of the dead was coming, and they were scaling the walls, and there was absolutely nothing we could do about it, and it yeah. was just this feeling of dread, and to think how quickly it has flipped is just remarkable. It, it's mind boggling, and my favorite story about that time, and this is when you and I worked together at Universal, um, I I started reading about um, some of these things like like uh, Napster. Mm-hmm. And um, I looked it up on my computer uh, prior to yeah. going into a meeting. And I was in shock that I could basically type in any song and find yep. a lot of different people that had it and I could download it onto my machine. Now, at Universal, we had pretty fast bandwidth, you know, relatively speaking. So it didn't take long. And then I would play those songs and for the most part, they sounded pretty good, you know, maybe not audiophile level, but it was free. I just got it, right? That's right. And so uh, this guy who now works for um, Bill Gates, um, he was in an office next to me. His name is Gary Shank, uh, one of those big brain guys, super great guy. I kind of knocked on the wall and said, Gary, c- come here. And he came into my office and I said, name a song. And he named one and I looked it up, showed him my computer and downloaded it i mean we were stunned we were just out and we knew oh we're we are so screwed right now because you know next thing you know college students were doing it and blank cd sales were going through the roof and mm-hmm. our business just uh fell apart you you could feel the 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 floors beneath us collapsing absolutely so 
pretty amazing. Uh, the other thing, of course, is, is genre-defying playlisting. It said streaming services such as Spotify have encouraged music fans to listen to different genres of music. The de-genreification of music has largely been brought about by the dominance wow. of playlisting, which has given rise to a new generation of genre-defying artists, as these artists take elements from different genres to create their own unique sounds. And as you were saying, the, one of the most interesting things once data became available to look at this is that, yes, people don't live in these very tight silos. They don't only listen to speed metal. They don't only listen That's to bluegrass. Right. They branch out and they certainly yeah. may like one of those principally, you know, as a, as a genre, but they listen to all kinds of stuff. And yeah. as you would imagine that... That, is, that starts to play into, to, when you have the ability to listen to so many different things at your fingertips, as a content creator, you're going to start mashing those things yeah. up. And that's, of yeah. course, is what's happening. And, and Spotify was really the first to understand that it's not necessarily about genre, it's about mood. Mm-hmm. And they, they have three playlists that were really kind of groundbreaking uh, that you may have read about. Um, one's called Lorem, L-O-R-E-M. The other one, Pollen. And then one uh, called Oyster. Those three playlists are really not genre based. Um, you'll see uh, several different genres uh, in, or subgenres in those playlists. And they were kind of the first to get away from that siloed, this is jazz, EDM, country, yeah. or even on right. the mood side saying, okay, this is a coffee house sound, you know, um, and this is your morning drive or, or whatever. So, the business, because of Spotify, I believe, you know, that point was genre-defying playlists. Um, they were really cutting edge with those those types of playlists. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Up next is, of course, something that the majors still don't really care for. They kind of hold their nose on this, I think. Ad-supported tier. Yeah. Spotify received a lot of flack for its free tier. However, marketers and companies quickly realized that this free ad-supported tier served as a way to aggregate personal data about users allowing Spotify to make educated guesses about its users, which is in turn used for advertising. So yeah, they say it's an entry drug, right? That if you use the free service that you'll eventually want to get rid of those ads and you'll, and some of the limitations uh, as to functionality and you'll move into the paid version. I'm not sure that that's a hundred percent accurate, but we're going to talk about a story in a minute about title. They now Mm -hmm. have launched a free tier, but it's not based on advertising. So hold that thought. Uh, we'll we'll yeah. get there. Um, you're absolutely right. The, the industry is really torn when it comes to this ad-supported tier because it's not the, the same revenue as a paid subscriber. Mm-hmm. Um, but to this article's point, there is data to be gleaned uh, from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, autoplay hard to remember. Hard to, for, to to remember that the rise of streaming services like Spotify has led to the creation of the autoplay function. Spotify's huge database of music and podcast content has enabled the platform to craft pretty accurate algorithmic suggestions that encourage the user to keep on using the platform. Yeah, uh, they I think were they an stole autoplay that. pioneer. Yeah, I, th- I, I think they, they did steal it. Well, too. I yes. think they stole it from YouTube. Um, but they, as far as streaming audio services, they they were one of the first, and they do it really well. As does YouTube. You know, if you hit play on something on YouTube or Spotify, they're going to serve you up something, and it's usually pretty good. It's usually pretty accurate yeah. as to what you're 
your tastes are. So that's autoplay. The next one is Apple's competitor. You know, um, in 2009, people forget Apple dominated the music business. They had 68% of all digital sales. Then all of a sudden, here comes Spotify, right? And they've <laughs> really right. disrupted, uh, you know, the entire market that was once really owned uh, by Apple. And I think that we need competition because it it spawns the innovations. I don't think Spotify would be as innovative as they've been had it not been for Apple. I think they should thank right. Apple. Yeah. And in turn, it, it we also do need to recognize that it was really Apple that got the ball rolling for everything. They they you know, they, because Apple and Steve Jobs in particular had the leverage and to pull everybody together and say, "Listen, you guys, you need to do this." Um, it needed that kind of um, cult of personality person like Steve Jobs to get everybody to, and that, which of course got us to where streaming is today. So yeah, uh, this this next one, of course, we talk about a lot: the rise of playlist curators. Uh, Spotify's playlist curators, maybe you can call them editors, play a large role in making or breaking an artist's career. A spot on one of the top playlists is the perfect launch pad for any emerging artist. They took the power, this is the most important thing though, is they took the power away from radio DJs mm -hmm. and are now dictating artists' future and shaping radio programming, which is very interesting yeah. how quickly that that flipped the switch. Yeah, so the tails speak, wagging the, the dog. The, yeah. Exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah, it used to be that you know the streaming services really watched what was going on at the different radio formats mm -hmm. and as you just said it's now the opposite of that uh the next one is next level personalization now people talk about algorithms a lot i i don't like to call them you know algorithmically created playlists i like to say personalized because yeah. algorithm has a negative connotation in some people's minds, whereas personalization is positive. And that's all it is, and they're very good at it. Pandora's yeah. been doing it for a long time. Other DSPs like you know Apple, Spotify, Amazon, every, everybody has some sort of personalization. And if it's accurate, if it's good, and it, it exposes you to the music that you love, who cares if it's an algorithm or... You know, at some point there was a human involved in there at some point. And really what we're talking about here are things like, you know, the reason you want to have people follow you on Spotify is so your music, when you release new music, is dropped into your followers, release radar, discover weekly, radio, things like that. And I think I've mentioned before on this show that uh, about a quarter of the spins across maybe 20 artists that I'm looking at right now, about 25% uh, or greater of the Spotify spins are coming from those sources. So mm -hmm. it's really important that you get people to follow you <clears throat> on Spotify. And yeah. um, these uh, personalized playlists, are they're very good. Uh, it's not a negative thing. They're good. Yeah. And I think for the interest of time, we should probably kind of speed it up just a little sure. bit. But I think one of the things we do want to mention, certainly... Uh, is the podcast boom. Um, and, y you know, without a doubt, uh, Spotify has really amplified. I mean, certainly podcast kind of it was more or less an Apple thing at first. And yeah. boy, but they have really... They just it, passed them. Yes, they just That's passed That's crazy. Them. Exactly. Yeah. I know it. Yeah. So they're yeah. they're shifting their focus. And of course, you know, as we've talked about, podcasting is is content that they can own um, That's and right. control in a way they can't with music. So but, yeah, but they can you know, monetize good on them. it. Yeah. And let's just Absolutely. really quickly I'll touch on the last three and then we'll move on uh, to the next story. Spotify Canvas, those are those eight second, you know, looping mm -hmm. videos that you can upload. And, you know, 
they they say that if you do that, it, it can increase your streams by 120% and increase your saves by over 100%. The other one is uh, Spotify Marquee Ads. I think you can do one for as little as $250. And um, we're running some tests on some of those. I've seen some tests. Typically, they're, they're, from, they're good. Um, some perform better than others. And then the last thing is Spotify Green Room, you know, which is their knockoff of Clubhouse. And it'll be interesting... You know, it's just now getting started, but it's going to be interesting to see. A, a lot of platforms are now launching their version of that that clubhouse uh, mm-hmm. model, and I I would never count Spotify out, um, no. just given their track record. So great, but again, great, you know, we great piece, and we have mentioned so many times is you know they innovate because they have to. You know, yeah. they are it's they have a different reality than, say, Google or Apple or any of the other, you know, folks that yeah. are offering the same services. So, yeah. And this piece uh, was written by Janelle Borg. And I've written her things uh, are written. I've read her writing uh, before and it's it's very, very good. So Amplify You, Janelle Borg, really great piece on Spotify. Absolutely. And next up, Jay from Simplify, from Simple, I'm sorry, not Simplify, Simple. Simple. Yeah. From Simple. Uh, will pre saves still be effective in 2022? Yeah. I'm going to pull up the story well, I'm while gonna, you're still talking about it. I'm going to, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this article. The reason I, I brought this up uh, is um, I did get a lot of feedback um, from this. And this was written by um, my friend Anthony Pacheco, he's the founder of Simple. And mm-hmm. they're really kind of leading the charge in, you know, a lot of things for developing artists like uh, targeted online advertising. And so pre-saves um, are a hot topic. And for those, you know, that don't know kind of the, the history of the pre-save, pre-ad, pre-order is it kind of started off with what we call the instant grat track. And that was with, um, let's say, iTunes, when iTunes was the beast, uh, the leading uh, source of digital revenue. You would do an instant grat track, meaning that if you bought that digital album, you got a track right that moment. Instant gratification, instant grat track. Well, over time, as streaming took off, that morphed into what we called an IGFT, instant grat focus track. So the IGFT, (laughs) you would drop a track as a focus track. Maybe you were working it at radio. Maybe you weren't, but that was kind of the newer version of the instant grat track. And with streaming, you know, it we didn't call it instant grat. We called it focus track because it was available right that moment and it was part of an album that was coming out. The problem is with, you know, everybody started doing pre-saves. And, you know, when you do a pre-save, you know, you, you have a, a service and uh, it will create a landing page and you create or you click on your DSP of choice. And then when that music is released, it's automatically dropped into your library pre-save. Um, uh, I think Apple calls it a pre-ad pre-save, pre-ad, pre-order, all kind of the same thing. Um, but there's a couple of issues with that and we're going to go into it a little bit here. And again, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this thing, but the one thing that wasn't brought up in here that I wanted to uh, just mention is one of the dangers of pre-save is you want to make sure that anybody who pre-saves your music is actually going to listen to it and engage with it. Right. Otherwise, it can harm you. And what I mean by that is, let's say that you're trying to jack up your pre-save numbers and you go, you know what, I am going to offer uh, a prize. Let's say it's a signed guitar. Um, pre-save, pre-add, pre-order my new music and win a chance to win this signed guitar. 
Well, there are people that will enter a contest uh, to win the guitar that may not be into your music, but they're going to enter to win that prize, sure, whatever yeah. that prize is. But if you get a lot of people who are pre-saving and then they don't actually listen to your music and they delete it from their library or whatever, again, that sends a wrong message to the DSP that they're they're really not your fans and they're really not engaged. Right. So that was one thing that just I, I wanted to bring that up. So we talked about what a pre-save is. They're very, very popular on TikTok now. And people will do a pre-save on something that they don't even know if it's going to come out or not just to gauge the interest. And it's like, Oh wow, I got a lot of interest on this. I will, you know, put this out. So that's, that's one area. But the, the one point I want to, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, the, the, the lack of attribution, um, Anthony talks about here, like, you know, we don't know what these pre-saves, pre-ads, pre-orders, you know, we don't have enough of the data. Like, where are they coming from? Where do they find out about right. it? Was it TikTok? Yeah. Was it a email newsletter? Was it the pre-save campaign? That's kind of the the problem because in other businesses, you know, we can kind of get a better view of of your commerce. You know, where it's actually coming from through Google Analytics and and places like that. So, it you don't really get a lot of the data that you you know, really need, like, where did they come from? What drove them to that? You can get information like you, you can get, typically you can get uh, gender, geo, um, you can get device, you can get, you know, like, what did they click on? Are they going to Amazon for the vinyl or are they going to Apple music? And it's interesting because it really varies. So there is some data that you can get from that, but the key data of where this traffic is coming from, it's not going to help you. Well, and he talks about <clears throat> SMS and email opt-ins, you know, that's, which sort of seems kind of like going old school <laughs> in this day and age. Yes. Um, yes. But, you know, I mean, again, this gets back to, I mean, at least to, again, you know, I'm not doing direct artist marketing at the moment. And it's just, I mean, it's a, it's a beautifully written article. It's super well laid out. Again, like what, you know, we talk also a lot about how when people do these, these kind of comparisons and, and things, the visualization of, of laying it out in an article is super great on this article. Again, I want to give him a, a big shout out on that, but it's, I mean, it's, it's such a rat. I guess when I'm, when I look at this stuff, it's like a rabbit hole. It's like, Oh my God, when you go so deep on it, it's really complex. And there's yeah. a lot of stuff to kind of consider. Yeah. These screenshots and, are really from, um, Anthony's got a new, um, platform, um, that I just learned about, uh, last week and talked to him. He actually gave me a little demo of it. Um, and some of the screenshots are from that to kind of help you see what that funnel is, because you'll see, this is a crazy part. Let's say you do a pre-save campaign. You may only get like, 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 let's say you get a hundred people to click on it. Maybe half of those people won't actually follow through and click to the DSP from the landing page. It's like, huh? You, you were interested enough to click on this. But now I'm losing you. Why is that happening? And you just mentioned, you know, he mentions the pros and cons of, you know, um, direct messaging, you know, SMS and email lists. And man, if you can own your um, your fan and have their email list, that's super important. He goes on, and again, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this one, but he talks about a company called Lalo um, mm-hmm. that we've talked to. 
and how their landing pages are a little bit different. It's really more of an engagement with the fan, and it's really more of, hey, can I send you a direct message when this comes out? Can I email you when this comes out, you know, when it's dropped? And I think the the bottom line in this article is that you don't, just because everybody's doing pre-saves doesn't mean that you have to, that there are other options out there, and Lalo, you know, as a platform is one of them. Right, exactly. So, I mean, it's again, it's like everything that we talk about. It is certainly, it, it's great to kind of analyze something like this and say, okay, should I be doing this as an artist? And what level of artist are you? And and, or maybe not. You know, and like you said, yeah. it's it's there's some pluses to it, and and there is there there are reasons to focus on this if you're if you're an artist. But I think by and large, he's saying, you know, it's probably not worth the time and the effort to to invest a lot in this. Yeah, there, it's most it's likely not, it's not for everyone. Right. Um, it's, yeah. Everybody's doing it because it's everybody wants that silver bullet. Um, and I'm not against pre-save, pre-ad, pre-order. But I like that he points out Lalo and, you know, other things to engage with your fans. It can't just all be about that. Um, right. Moving on to our, our last story. This is from um, Murray Stassen from Music Business Worldwide. And yeah. this was really super interesting this week. Um, title to launch user-centric royalty system and direct to artist payments. This is uh, yes. a pretty big deal. Yeah, starting in 2022, the music streaming service is planning to adopt what it calls a fan-centered royalties approach for its new Hi-Fi Plus members. Yeah, we'll and talk it about says that, that it in has, a second. Yeah, yeah it all, it, and it says it has the support from the vast majority of its record label and distributor partners. That, that was in quotation marks. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so first of all, so that's a 1999 membership option. Right. You just called so, that the Hi-Fi Plus. Yes. So that's new. And well, yeah. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, 1999 is not an insignificant number. That's that's a you know that's, that's like double pricey. what everything else is. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, uh, according to this, uh, titles COO Lior uh, Tip. Tibon or Tibone says that there are more than 100 partners on board, but didn't specify the names of the companies. Yeah. Uh, before this, so Title had two tiers. They had premium and hi-fi. Right. Now they're going to three membership tiers, including this new hi-fi plus at $19.99. Yep. Old school hi-fi is $9.99. Yep. Uh, and then, this is the really the big interesting news, for the first time they're adding a free tier that they're calling, not surprisingly, Title Free. Right. And as I mentioned, uh, though, what's really interesting about that free version is you think, oh, well, it's ad supported. Um, they're saying that the free tier will provide access to Title's entire audio catalog, primarily in shuffle mode with limited interruptions. But those interruptions, they won't be from ads. They're going to be messages from the service itself. So it sounds yeah. like, you know, um, they're going to pay. Uh, the rights holders for this, and they're going to use that to draw people in, and then those ads will be to upsell people to Hi-Fi and uh, the higher tier. Yeah, and then, now jumping back to the Hi-Fi Plus, so they say under the fan-centered royalties model, royalties attributed to this new Hi-Fi Plus subscribers will be paid based on their individual streaming activity 
as opposed to, you know, what we know is the industry standard method of aggregating streams and paying out to artists from uh, a pool at the end of the payment period. Right. The pro rata. Yeah. Yes. And their, their user-centric idea has been gaining traction, obviously, in the industry for a couple of years, with Deezer launching a public campaign in 2019 to champion what it calls user-centric payment systems, their UCPS. So this is interesting. Um, and I don't know off the top of my head. So where is Tidal in the in the pantheon of options? You know, are they kind of in the middle? Or are they no, they're, closer they're, to... Yeah, they're, they're, one they're the near smaller. the bottom, right? Yeah, they're yeah. one of the smaller, but... For those who, you know, you hear us say things like user-centric, um, this bears repeating. <clears throat> Here's a difference between the current model, which we're calling pro rata, and user-centric. User-centric means that if a user listened to one artist all month, that artist would get 100% of the payout. Okay, pretty simple. You know, you listen to the accidentals all month, your $9.99, or in this case, $19.99 uh, fee, um, the portion that's in the payout would go to them. Pro rata model um, is that the rights holders are paid according to market share in a given time period, this pool of money. So there are two separate ways uh, of calculating revenue. There are some people who claim that there wouldn't be much of a difference, but there was one, I'm looking for the line in here, there's one line that I was reading where someone estimated that their artist it was like up 500% or something like that with user centric versus pro rata. Um, but it's, it's super interesting, you know, with this high quality, you know, that we talk about the audio file, but also what they're calling immersive sound, you know, uh, Dolby Atmos, Sony 360. Um, those things are becoming more and more popular. So people not only want the higher quality audio, um, but they want this kind of spatial experience uh, listening to music as well. Exactly, exactly. Now, they're also kind of, <laughs> this article has a lot of stuff in it. So they're also talking about, um, in addition to this fan-centered royalty system, they're talking also about a direct-to-artist payment, yeah. which will see a percentage of Hi-Fi Plus subscribers' membership fees directed toward their top-streamed artist direct to the artist though which is interesting well you that know, would uh, only be if the artist controls is their yes masters exactly and, and a course. lot of a lot of them do um you know they'll go through cd baby distro kid you know mm -hmm. stem TuneCore, whatever and a lot of artists do control um their rights but there's a lot that don't and those yeah. those artists if you're represented by a major label for example they're not going to be sending you, uh, they're, they're going to send it to the rights holder. Right, exactly. But, I mean, I, what, I, what I find the most interesting about this article is, you know, it's, it's again, this is one of the smaller DSPs, but you know what, they're, they're, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a little crack in the dam. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, it could, that maybe, yeah, it differentiates them, right? That's right. That's right. So maybe, you know, maybe it's, it, it, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to, going to be um it's not going to change things but it's just sort of like a little again a crack in the dam it's yeah. like oh maybe this is this is foretelling something else that's yes. going to happen and so yeah we will continue to kind I, of stay on top of this yeah i agree and just to put a bow on it just as a recap you know um their titles membership options now include these three things right one title free we talked about but that's only mm -hmm. in the u.s 
Um, that's not worldwide. That gives access to uh, you know their entire catalog and playlist with quote unquote limited in interruptions. Number two at nine ninety nine title hi fi, and that's no interruptions and it's hi fi sound quality whatever that is. And number three for nineteen ninety nine hi fi plus, which features everything the hi fi tier offers, in addition to what you just described as fan centered uh, royalties and direct to artist payment. So that's that user centric model. I'm with yes. you. I think this is really innovative. I think it's really exciting. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it develops and how, how, you know, what success they have and hopefully they can grow their, their base of subscribers and who knows, maybe other DSPs will follow suit. Well, and much like <clears throat> we've talked about many times with Spotify, you know, they innovate cause they have to. And, and title, needs to innovate as well because they are not one of the bigger uh, DSPs yeah. and why not? Why not, you know, kind of fire a shot? Good on you. Kind of, exactly. Good on you. <laughs> and on that note, Jay, let us roll away as we head into, so by the time we talk next thing, next week, it will be Thanksgiving will have gone by and Black Friday. So we'll have lots to talk Ooh. about and the Beatles, yeah. the Beatles get back will have, have, uh, have premiered. So yeah. uh, we'll have much to talk about next week. I, and, I hope uh, everybody has a beautiful, beautiful holiday uh, week and, uh, and we're super thankful that we have this podcast and our audience and our uh, sponsors. Absolutely. Who include TiVo, Music, Metadata, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Big thanks to everybody. So for Jay Gilbert and myself, have a wonderful Thanksgiving week. We appreciate you listening in. This has been episode number 67 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. And we will be back next week. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know. <laughs>